Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight as we study your word, that you'd give us understanding uh, from this text. And Lord, certainly this is a spiritual endeavor. Uh, this is not merely an intellectual endeavor. And so we ask that you would help us. I pray that you'd help me, give me wisdom, give me clarity of thought, give me clarity to communicate uh, the word of God uh, to, to these people. And I pray that you give the listener uh, understanding and wisdom as they hear these things, that we might be more appreciative of what you've done for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter number 5. We'll begin reading in verse number 12. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Verse number 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death uh, by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. But not as, not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. In our text, Paul is concluding this second section in Romans that began in the second half of chapter 3, and this section is on justification, justification by faith. After Paul introduces this, this theme in chapter number 3, we find in chapter number 4 that Paul teaches us that justification is by faith alone, not by works. Then it is by grace alone, not by law. And then it is by divine ability, not by human ability. When we come into chapter number 5, Paul begins to outline the implications or the blessings of justification. And the blessings that Paul outlines here are magnificent. He begins with peace with God, which is the fundamental problem that the gospel solves. Access to God in verse number 2, hope of glory, the love of God being placed on our hearts through the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, future salvation from God's wrath, uh, joy through the atonement. These are some of the blessings that Paul outlines in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. But when we come to verse number 12, Paul is continuing the thought of justification. Uh, but he is, uh, there is a clear shift in his thought. And this shift in his thought follows a pattern uh, that we see oftentimes in the book of Romans. As Paul is expounding a particular subject, we'll see sometimes throughout this book, he all of a sudden stops and he anticipates an objection or a question that someone might raise and he begins to address that question. And so as we come to the end of that section of the blessings of justification, the question that I believe Paul anticipates, or some form thereof uh, that he anticipates, is how can Christ's death benefit so many? It was Christ's one death 
that provided the basis for our justification. And the question may arise, how can his one, one righteous life and death result in so many sinners being justified? And so it is here in these verses that Paul, I believe, anticipates this form of question, and he addresses how it is possible for God to justify all that believe in Christ by the one righteous life and death of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, our text is a very weighty one. This is not a surface issue. This is a very uh, deep issue. This gets into the, the heart of how God deals with humanity. This, is get, this gets into the mechanics of how God deals with, with, with humans. And the text that we're about to study is divided into two sections. The first of all is the section on Adam's headship over the whole world that we see in verses 12 through 14. And the second section is Adam's headship compared and contrasted to Christ's headship beginning in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And let me also state before we get into it that this text goes against the grain of our individualistic mindset. We as Westerners are taught and we have learned and it is ingrained into our being uh, to, to think in terms of the individual, the individual. But as we find when we study the Bible, that the Bible really doesn't deal with individuals as much as it do deals with groups or familial, familial units. And so here in this text, it is going to go against the grain of our society. It is going to go against the grain of our biases, of our Western biases. And of course, truth, the Word of God, stands above our culture, stands above our biases. And so we have to be willing to set that aside to acknowledge, excuse me, the truth of God's Word. And so keep that in mind as we begin to look at these verses. So I start with the effect of Adam's sin upon the human race in verses 12 through 14. And before I read these three verses again, I, I want to introduce three concepts to you. And I want you to be actively thinking about these concepts as I read through these verses to see if you can pick, pick them out. The first concept is sin nature. The second concept is death as a consequence of sin. And the third is guilt of sin. And these concepts are distinct, distinct. Sin nature, uh, um, uh, sin nature, death as a consequence of sin, and guilt of sin. Now let me read the verses and see if you can see if you can parse through these verses and see the different concepts. Beginning in verse number 12, Wherefore, as by one man centered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law was sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgressor, transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, if you were paying attention as I read those verses, I'm sure you picked out at least a couple of those concepts. As we begin to walk through these verses, I think you'll, you'll be able to pick out all three of them. In verse number 12, Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered the world. There's been much study that is given to human psychology and human behavior, but all of human nature, all of human behavior can be traced back to this truth right here, is that wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. Now, we know sin did not begin with Adam. In fact, sin did not enter this earth through Adam. Before Adam sinned, both Eve and the, and the devil uh, sin on this earth. And so when, when Paul says, by one man, sin entered the world, what he's talking about is sin infected, it affected the human race. It's not talking about the earth, it's talking about 
the human race. Adam was the authoritative representative figure over the entire human race. And at that time, of course, there were only two humans. But little did he know that when he acted, his one act would affect the entire human race, all those that have come after him. His act literally impacted hundreds of generations. Adam's sin, as different from Eve's sin, was not born out of deception. Uh, I, I personally like to classify Adam's fall as a rebellion because he didn't stumble, as we might think. He, he, he walked right into that. His eyes were wide open. He was not deceived like Eve. And also notice there, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world. That's not sins. That's not plural. That's singular. Sin entered the world. Adam did not introduce every kind of sin to the world, but he introduced the sin principle to the hum human race. He introduced sin to the nature of mankind. And so by Adam, through Adam, sin entered the world. Adam was the door through which sin entered the human race. Uh, when, when Adam sinned, he was able to sin, but he was also able to not sin. And that is different from you and I, because now we are, let me throw a double negative at you, we are not able to not sin. That's the only way I could put that. We are not able to not sin. And that is directly as a result of Adam's sin. And we obviously know sin nature resides in the heart of every human. And you see it in, in children uh, most oftentimes. A child, from the moment it is born, knows one thing. And that is, I, I matter. I matter. That, that child comes out of the womb with selfishness and self-centeredness more than just about any, any other creature in the world. And as that child becomes a toddler, uh, that, is, that, uh, that sin nature becomes even more apparent and even more ma manifested. As the child gets older, they learn to deceive their parents and deceive those around them. So they, they learn to cover up their sin nature. Uh, like many of us have covered up the sin nature that we possess. So the older one gets, I think, I think if we were to think of this in terms of a climax, uh, the sin nature is most apparent at climaxes in that toddler stage. And as they get older, they, they, they get more deceptive. But even that deception in and of itself is a manifestation of the sin nature. So all humans, uh, from the moment of conception, are infected with that sin nature. But notice the next statement that Paul makes there in verse number 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered in the world, and death by sin. Just as Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, so death came as a result of Adam's sin. Just as Adam is the door through which sin entered the human race, so sin is the door through which death entered the human race. As I mentioned just a moment ago, when Adam was created, he was both able to sin and able to not sin. But, but Adam was also both able to die and able to not die. And when he sinned, death entered the world, and now, again, another double negative, we are not able to not die. All humans that enter into this world, that are born into this world, will die. Death is simply part of the human experience. So if you think about the monumental effect of Adam's transgression upon the human race, all the battlefields soaked with blood, all the prisons that are filled with criminals, all the hospitals that are filled with patients, 
and all of the hearts that are filled with unrest can all be traced back to one man, and that is Adam. So we see both the sin nature and we see death as a result of Adam's sin. Both the sin nature and death can be traced back to Adam and can be credited to Adam. Now I want you to pay attention to the end of verse number 12 because this is where things get a little hairy. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. See, what Paul is saying here is that the deeds of sin are produced from a character that has been corrupted by the sin nature. And this is, as we will see, whether one knows it or not. And we see this, obviously, with, with children. All the sinful motives uh, belong to the heart well before, uh, or long before, one knows that they possess sin sinful motives. I mean, are children not selfish? Are children not prideful as, as an example? But let's get this straight here, because this is important. Paul is teaching that we are sinners, or, or that we sin, we commit acts of sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we commit, com commit acts of sin. You see the difference there. This world wants us to believe that humans are inherently good, that everybody possesses a good in the depths of their heart. That, that couldn't be further from the biblical truth. The Bible teaches us that all are unrighteous. There is none that doeth good. And so there, we, are, we commit acts of sin because we, are, uh, because we are sinners. But again, I introduced three concepts to you. That was the sin nature, death as a consequence of sin, and then the guilt of sin, guilt of sin. Our Calvinist brethren, as they read verse number 12, will read the verse like this. We're forced by one man sin entered in the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, and they would add two words here, in Adam. All have sinned in Adam. But that leaves us with a troubling admission. If we have all sinned in Adam, then all are guilty in Adam. All are guilty in Adam's sin. Now that leads to two possible conclusions. The first is that those that have not reached the age of accountability are therefore guilty of Adam's sin. Those that have not committed any willful transgression of the law are guilty of Adam's sin. So that would mean that God could send those that have never reached the age of accountability to hell because they are guilty of Adam's sin. The second and, and by the way, it's not that we reject that because we simply are not willing to go that far. But we reject that because that, that contradicts other clear passages of Scripture. The second um, point that, that, that we would have to admit here is that, and, and this is where Paul is going here, here in chapter 5. He's making a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Christ. And so if all are guilty in Christ even if they commit no willful transgression, then it would be easy to assume that all will be righteous in Christ, even if they do not accept Christ willfully. So you see, this leads to a form of universalism, which is the belief that all, no matter if they believe in Christ or not, will end up in, in, in hell. And that is the logical step here, to believe in universalism. And of course we reject that, because that rejects, uh, in no uncertain terms, clear teaching in Scripture. But, but still, if we're being intellectually honest, there are some things here in Romans chapter 5 that are quite difficult if we are not willing to say that we believe that we share in Adam's guilt. 
Specifically, if you will, verse number 16, look at it. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. And here's the phrase that you should pay attention, attention to. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Verse number 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That sure seems to indicate to me that condemnation is a result of one man's sin. And I already know that one of the things somebody will do with this passage is they'll try to redefine condemnation. But here we are in the section on justification. And Paul is directly contrasting this to justification here in Romans, in verse number 16 and verse number, verse number 16 and verse number 18. Justification is contrasted with, uh, with, with, with condemnation. And we know justification is that declaration of righteousness. It takes us into that legal realm. And so if justification is the de declaration of righteousness, so condemnation would then be the declaration of guilt. And so we see here in verse number 16 and verse number 18, there is a sense in which that we are declared guilty in Adam. Look at it again with that in mind. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. Verse 18 uh, therefore, it's by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. It's really hard to be intellectually honest and read those two verses and not say that we are guilty in Adam's sin. So then, must we admit that all are guilty in Adam and deal with the consequences of that admission? I believe that we can submit to the text, be intellectually honest, and also not contradict other passages as well. Again, all through these verses, there is a comparison and a contrast between those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. The effect of Adam on the human race versus the effect of Christ on the human race. And so I think it's reasonable to take this issue and do the exact same thing. Make a comparison between our relationship with Christ and our relationship with Adam. So let me ask you a question. We're talking about justification. Did you participate in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? And the answer is obviously no. You didn't do anything in participating in Christ's righteousness. But yet, you are justified, you are imputed His righteousness. You are, his righteousness is, is imputed to your account. It is accounted to your account. Now, how did you get that? Well, you entered into a willful relationship with Jesus Christ. You entered, you entered into Christ by His terms, which was faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So then, did we participate in Adam's sin? No, we were not there. Uh, but, but when you willfully sin, you then participate with Adam, so to speak, in his sin. You enter into that same relationship with Adam that, that, that we're mirroring, that we're, uh, uh, that we're comparing to and contrasting to entering into that relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, what did Adam do? Adam was not deceived. Adam willfully sinned. He ate of the fruit willfully, knew that he was going to be uh, alienated from God for that. He knew he was going to die for that, and yet he did it anyway. And the moment that the law comes to you, when the moment the understanding of what you are about to do, that you are about to transgress the law of God, uh, when that moment comes to you and you willfully disobey, I believe that you are guilty of Adam's sin. That the sin of Adam is imputed to your account. 
Just as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account, so the sin of Adam, the transgression of Adam, is imputed to your, to your account as well. Now let's, let's look at verse number 13 to see if we're going the right direction. In verse number 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, there's that word, when there is no law. Imputed means to be counted, to account, to, 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 to account. And so sin is not accounted for, it is not imputed, you are not declared guilty until there is law. And we know there's, there, there's a sin in the world before the law, and this is going to be uh, illustrated uh, in that time between Adam and Moses in verse number uh, 14. But, but there are things that, I mean, even a child knows, uh, just, just as an example, just a little bit ago, Brighton was in the, uh, the bookstore, and it, this was way before anybody was here, but Brighton went into the bookstore, and she went into one of those cabinets, and there was absolutely nobody around. And nobody said, no, you can't do that, or anything of the sort. But I, I just happened to be standing right around the corner, and I didn't say anything. I was just watching her, uh, because I happened to enjoy watching mischievous behavior. And, and as she, soon as she turned around, she got startled. She gave me her, her uh, patented dirty look. But she, she didn't need to be told that was wrong. She knew what she, was, what she was trying to do. She didn't quite get away with it, but what she was trying to do was not, was not right. But it is that moment in which you know what you are doing is wrong, that moment in which the law says don't do this and you do it, that sin is then imputed to your account. So we see that we inherit our sin nature from Adam, and we live in a world that is dominated by death because of Adam's transgression. And that when we willfully sin, the sin of Adam is imputed to our account. The guilt of Adam is imputed to, to, to our account. And now beginning in verses 15 through 17, we see the headship of Christ contrasted and compared to the headship of Adam. And we see in verse number 15 through 17 that this relationship, that the effect of Adam is contrasted to the effect of Christ. We see this from, from the, the phrasing here in these verses, such as not as or much more, indicates the contrasting nature of Paul's words here. And then in verses 18 through 21, Paul is going to compare the effect of, of Adam to the effect of Christ. And we see this through the phrase, even so, to indicate that it is comparison as opposed to a contrast. And Paul sets us up for this analogy at the end of verse number 14 when Paul says of Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. Paul's analogy is to simply say that one, as one man affected the whole human race, so another man affected the whole human race. And I could just see Paul as he writes those words that, that, Paul, or that, that Adam excuse me, is the figure of him that was to come. He immediately... Uh, wants to be clear that that is where the analogy ends. That the analogy ends where Adam affected the human race and Christ affected the race. The nature and the actual effect of those two individuals are, are far from each other, are in fact exact opposites. So he immediately, in verse number 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Before you think that there's a whole lot of likeness between Adam and Christ, uh, Paul makes sure to draw a distinction between these two characters. And I want you to see the first contrast, which is a contrast of nature, of the nature of each man's action. 
the nature of each man's action. Look what he says there in verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. If I could describe Adam's action this way, Adam's action, his sin, offended the whole human race. It hurt the whole, the whole human race. It caused the entire human race to stumble. It was the one act that had a more devastating consequence on the entire human race than any other act uh, ever in human history. Adam's action was motivated by selfishness. He either looked at that fruit uh, as something that looked so attractive that he was willing to forego uh, fellowship with God and the Word of God. He was willing to disobey God to partake of that fruit. Or he looked at that fruit, realized that his wife had taken it, and realized that the only way he was going to be able to have any chance of continuing fellowship with his wife was by partaking of the same fruit that she, she partook of. No matter what Adam did, no matter what the motivation was in Adam's taking of that fruit, of disobeying God's law, it was absolutely motivated by selfishness by pride. If I could put it this way, he made his decision based on his wants and his needs, not on the Word of God and not on the potential damage that it could do. Another way, Adam took my life to satisfy his own, his own uh, perceived needs. He robbed me, he robbed you of our life, of our chance at immortality because of his desire for sin. But then we see that it's contrasted with the free gift of Jesus Christ. Not as the offense, so is the free gift. Just as Adam took from us, Christ gave to us. Just as Adam thought only of himself, so Christ thought not of himself. Just as Adam took, from, took our life to satisfy his own perceived needs, so Christ laid down his life to satisfy our needs. And do you see the difference in the nature of these two acts? Adam acted against our interests. Christ acted for our interests. Adam's transgression was a burden. Christ's gift was a blessing. Uh, but notice the second difference, the second contrast here in verse number 16. The second contrast is of the effect of each man's act. In verse number 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so, it is, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. The act of Adam produced condemnation for all. That is a pronouncement of guilt upon all that are in Adam. But Christ produced, uh, or Christ produced justification, and that is a declaration of righteousness upon all those that believe in Christ. In verse number 17, we get another aspect of this effect uh, of each man's act. In verse number 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Adam produced death, but Christ produced life. So the differences are monumental. And these two are, in fact, exact opposites. On one hand, you have a man who is against us, who brought us or brought upon us condemnation, who brought death upon us. On the other hand, you have a man who is for us, who brought on justification, who gives, who, who gives us life. And as you can probably tell, the act of Christ counteracts and neutralizes the act of Adam. Uh, as Adam brings death, so Christ brings life. 
As Adam brings condemnation, so Christ brings justification. Christ undoes, so to speak. He neutralizes the effect of Adam's sin. But then in verse number 15 and verse number 17, Paul wants us to make very clear here that it's not just that Christ's act neutralizes the act of Adam, but it goes, as Paul puts it, much more. It goes above and beyond. It doesn't merely overcome the effects of Adam's transgression upon us, but it, it is much more. It is much greater. It is much better. It is much more wonderful than how, how terrible the effect of Adam's transgression is upon us. Verse number 16, again, I want to read it, and you see how powerful the effect of Christ's act is upon us. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Uh, so, so you see there, one act produced con condemnation. One sinful act produced condemnation for the entire human race. But when Christ died for us, His one act covered a an infinite amount, an unnumbered amount, a multitude of transgressions. So Christ's act is more powerful than Adam's act. Christ's act does not merely offset, but it overcomes, it overwhelms the effect of Adam's sin. In verse number 17, again, it goes above and beyond. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Death reigned. We have there uh, introduced a little bit earlier, but here in verse number, verse number 17, kingdom language. Death has dominion on this earth. Death is the master of all those that enter into, uh, enter into this world, that are born into this life. Uh, anyone that is born into this life will die, will die. Uh, and so, so death reigns, death reigns. But then look what he says in verse number 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. It's not just that we are transported to another kingdom, a kingdom of light and of life. But, but, but this reminds me of what we find in Revelation 5, which is that, it, and, and, and He has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It's not only that He reigns over us in love, but that we reign with Jesus Christ. So you see, death reigns over us, and now in that in that manifestation of much more, we reign with Christ in life. And, and so do you see how not only does Christ's act negate and overcome Adam's act, but do you see how it overwhelms and it goes above and beyond the call of duty? It goes above and beyond negating the act of Adam. Let me put it this way. We are better off now having... having endured the sin nature, living in a world that is corrupted by sin and death, having the guilt of Adam imputed to our account through the willful disobedience of the law, and to have experienced the righteousness of Christ being imputed to our account, than to go back to the state that Adam was in. We are better off than Adam was before Adam sinned. You see that we, we are... We are not just not guilty, but we are righteous in Jesus Christ. 
think, think, I'm sure you've heard the words declared in a, in a courtroom setting before, not guilty, not guilty. We've all heard those words echo out across a courtroom. And those are wonderful words if, in, in fact, the defendant is not guilty. And, and if you think about Adam, every day that Adam resisted the temptation uh, of that fruit, uh, we could almost declare Adam as not guilty yet, not guilty yet. There's still an opportunity to be found guilty, but he passed another day. He's not guilty yet. But, but when Christ went to the cross for us, and when his act overwhelmed Adam's act, it's not just that we are found not guilty, but it is that we are declared positively righteous. We are righteous. We have been given, we have been imputed, the, or the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account. And I don't want to get a little bit, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's look at verse number 18. Even so, or let's read the whole verse. Therefore, as by, one, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift, free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And then in verse number 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteousness. We're talking about now the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. And, and by the way, I know that's, that may be a fancy word to you, but, but that is a glorious doctrine, a glorious truth, that the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, is imputed to my account. And again, how can this be? How can it be that we are declared righteous before God, before the holy judge? And that is because Christ passed the test. There are some that believe that when we receive the, or when, when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account, that it is merely a passive righteousness, that it is merely His nature, so to speak, that is imputed to our account. But I don't think that's, uh, that aligns with, with what we read here in Romans 5, what we read in Philippians 2. It's not merely that Christ was righteous, that is imputed to our account. It is that he passed the test. He passed the test that Adam did not pass. When Christ came to this earth, as we read there in verse number 19, the key word there is, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteousness. Christ passed the test. And, and I'll make a controversial statement, and let me explain it. Let me explain it before you label me a heretic. Everybody that stands before God will stand before God based on works. The question is, whose works will you stand before God with? If you stand before God with your own filthy rag, with your own righteousness, they are, as we find, they are filthy rags. But Christ's righteousness, and again, we're not talking about passive righteousness. We're talking about Him coming to this earth and Him living a perfect, sinless life for 33 and a half years. And that obedience was manifested in Him being obedient, unto death, even the death of the cross, as Philippians chapter 2 says. And that obedience was testified by the Father when He raised Him from the dead, signifying that Jesus had not been touched by sin. He had not been corrupted by death. When Christ got out of the grave, He provided the foundation for our justification, for His act of righteousness. Again, again, I, I remind you of the time that Jesus was baptized and the witness came from the heavens that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, and when Christ now, or when the Father now looks at me, 
That's what he sees. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The active righteousness of Jesus Christ that was manifested on this earth is then imputed to my account. It's not just that Jesus, that the Father sees a blank slate in me. It is that when he sees me, he sees every righteous act that Christ committed on this earth. It is the act of righteousness, the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. But there is a flip side to this. It is not just that Christ's righteousness is imputed to my account, but we also believe in double imputation, which is that in order for, my, for his righteousness to, be, righteousness to be imputed to my account, my sinfulness, my sin has to be imputed to his account. And the only way that Christ could secure the blessing that we read about here in Romans chapter number 15 is if he were to take on the curse that is brought on by Adam's sin. And the only way that Jesus could provide us with righteousness is if he became sin for us. And the only way that Jesus could provide life for us is if he were to take the death that was brought on by Adam's sin. And the only way that Jesus could provide justification is if Jesus took on the condemnation that was due to you and I. And my friends, this is why that we have no chance of condemnation. Uh, there is no chance of, there is no condemnation for those that are in, in, in Christ Jesus because He took our condemnation and He replaced it with His justification, with His righteousness. Now in verses number 18 through 21, Paul begins to make these comparisons of Adam's transgression and Christ's uh, obedience. Uh, largely, he is drawing off the same points that he has just made in verses 15 through 17. And his point is to address the question that was anticipated at the beginning of the section, which was, how can Christ's death be the basis of blessing to so many? And Paul states that since Adam's sin had such a devastating impact on the entire human race through Adam's headship, so Christ can have a wonderful effect on all those that are under Christ's headship. And here's the wonderful part of it all. You know who can be under Christ's headship? It is all those that are under Adam's headship. I, I don't know about you, but I believe in a whosoever will gospel. And those that are under Adam have hope because Christ came and he took our sin. He took our death. He took our condemnation and he gave us life justification and, and righteousness. And I think of those, and, and, and let, me, let me close with this, verse number 20. This great, great statement here in verse number 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And it's not simply that that all can access the righteousness of Christ. It's that no matter how full the sinfulness of man gets, no matter how much sin man invents, Christ's righteousness and His free gift will always be sufficient to cover the multitude of transgressions. And I think of those who crucified Christ, who was the gift of God. Could there have been a greater demonstration of human debauchery? Could there have been an example where God's wrath was more stored up and poured out than on their sin? I don't think there could be. To take the gift of God and to crucify Him, to kill Him, 
What a terrible act. That is, in fact, the climax of human sin. And yet on the cross, Christ looked at those, uh, looked at those men that crucified him, and, and he prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness provided to them, to them that crucified the gift of God, the Son of God, if it can be provided to them, then it can be provided to any and all who come under the headship of Christ. Now let me just close with this. How does this apply to you and I? We want something that helps us get through the rest of the week. Well, let me tell you. If you lay your head on the pillow tonight without sincerely thanking God for His gift and His wonderful grace to you and I, you are a sorry human being. There should not be a day that goes by that you don't get on your knees and you say, thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for the grace and the wonderful gift that He has provided for us. Thank God that He took on our sin so that we might, that the righteousness of Christ might be imputed to our account. Father, thank you once again for what you've done for us. And boy, you've done so much for us. Lord, you overcome the effect of Adam's transgression. Lord, you took upon yourself our sin. You endured the cross, the shame of the cross, Lord, for us. And we thank you for it. We pray that you'd help us to take these things with us now and to simply be more appreciative of what you have done for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.